People sometimes say to me, wow, you got 5 million views on Tap Tap Revenge. Imagine if you charge 99 cents for that, you'd have made $5 million by now. I was like, no, you're crazy. But you know what? It's not the end of the world. Because they're going to have 200,000 users, but I have 7 million or 10 million. I know this thing is going to be big. I have to be there. I'm going to be the first one there. about uh, our experiences um, with a new startup uh, on the iPhone and the iPod Touch. Uh, I think Jeremy already introduced myself. This is my fourth or fifth venture. I did a non-profit community, one of the first digital divide programs. Uh, worked on a company called Easel where we set out to make Linux easier to use. Um, helped launch Firefox. That led to a browser startup called Flock where I was the founding CEO. And then I was an entrepreneur in residence at a venture capital firm uh, when I got excited about the iPhone. And uh, that led to the current company, Tapulous. When, 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 when we started the company, the idea was that the iPhone was going to be disruptive and that it was going to really mark the beginning of the mobile decade. And the idea was that decade one was the PC revolution, decade two was the network revolution, the internet and the social user-generated revolution, and that while we'd been talking about it for a long time, with the iPhone, we'd start, finally start the third phase, the third decade properly, where it's all about the device that's now social, and it's connected, and it's a computer, shrink it into your pocket so it's always with you. And, and the iPhone was the first device to really execute and, and, uh, and deliver on that, on that vision. Uh, and this was going to be big, and when there's big new d technologies, there'll be entirely new categories of applications and companies that are built and, 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 and disruptive uh, new, new companies can be created. And... On the product side, and we wanted to be there early and one of the first ones. And on the product side, sort of looking back on my experiences working on Linux and then working on web browsers, I like the idea of big platform plays and, and the business that you can build around it and how close and how important you are to the user. Uh, but these things take years. In the case of Linux on the desktop, now we are eight years later and it's called the netbook and a couple of people are using Linux for that. But boy, it takes a long time to get people to make those kind of transitions and with Firefox, it took five years. And, and Flock, if it ever makes it, it might still take another four years before the thing really gets to critical mass. So we wanted to, I was still, I'm still excited about big new platforms and big new opportunities, but wanted to be able to do it in a much more lightweight fashion and have something that has some virality and network effects and social uh, aspects. And so the idea was, hey, let's build something that's almost like RockU or Slide uh, uh, for, for the iPhone where you have a family of very lightweight, almost widget-like applications that uh, the user can sort of step into without having to give it too much thought and without having to make a big commitment and, and, or feel nervous. Uh, but on the back end, let's build a social platform underneath it so that you'll have a concept of a profile and a friends list and, and a feed that are shared across all of these networks. And so it's like Rocky for the iPhone, except that the real value largely resides in the network underneath it that you're also building as you're building these little bit cheap simple apps. That was the idea when we started the company. And learning from my experiences, uh, um, uh, with, with Flock in particular, where we raised, I don't know, $50 million over, over three rounds, uh, and we ended up with a company of, I don't know, 30, 40 people before we had any revenues and before we had any users, um, wanted to learn from that and do something that was a lot more, more bootstrapped, uh, which would be less money, get to market much more quickly, uh, iterate, be able to turn the company on a dime much more easily and avoid some of the pitfalls of VC funding in terms of the control that you lose, in terms of the ownership that you lose. Um, 
Now, one of the things that I now know, because it's no longer my first time, is we always knew, and one of the first things I would say is, if you met me a year ago, is that, well, 90 days after launch, I'm sure it'll be very different than what, it, than, than what we think it is now, and that's in fact what happened. The thing that was constant was that the, the big idea, uh, in fact, turned out to be right, the big bet. And, and the iPhone has proven uh, to be very, very disruptive. Um, and the, the users, the, the number of people that have moved onto the platform, uh, and the success of the App Store in particular, um, and are now being copied by everyone, and I really do think that um, there's a guy at Excel Partners, of one of the top venture firms, Rich Wong, and he sort of talks about the old style of mobile startups in the old world. It's like the Soviet model of mobile, and, and that is collapsing all around us. And it's only a matter of time before you see other carriers and other makers uh, jump onto that bandwagon. They're all jumping on it, uh, but nobody's really come up with a killer alternative for the, for the iPhone just yet. So this is disruptive. The fundamental bet that we placed was correct. On the product side, uh, instead of having 10 apps that are each sort of contributing and that are all about um, location-based services and connecting with my friends while I'm on the go... Um, interestingly, if we look at our... We have 10 apps that are out today, and... We have four that have more than 100,000 users, actually five. Tap Tap Dance has more than 100,000. Nine Inch Nails probably has 100,000 by now. Uh, Tap Tap Revenge, Collage, Twinkle. Uh, there's one more, I think, that has 100,000 users. So, but, but, but one of them has 6 million users, and the other ones have like 150,000, 150, 200,000 users. So we had one big hit, and it wasn't about location-based services. It's about games. That was a big learning. And on the company side, um, we focused very much on getting to market very quickly and executing very fast. And that bit us uh, because we didn't spend enough time building a great team and, and, and sort of having the DNA of the company really settle. And as a result of that, we had churn on the team side, um, and, 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 and that's been somewhat painful. So this is basically this is my last slide, I believe. Yeah, I'm going to tell you a little bit more about what we're doing this year. Let me, let me do this one now just so that you know what we're doing next, and then we'll talk about the lessons. What we're going to do this year is build on the success of TapTap Revenge, 6 million users, number one game on the iPhone and the, and the iPod Touch. Uh, we're going to keep investing in the free game. Second thing we're going to do is we're going to crank out more and more uh, of these premium special versions. We're doing what with Coldplay right now. We're doing what with Dave Matthews Band. Uh, we can do as many of these as we want, and it's a way of making money. Uh, it's also a way of getting more music into the game. Uh, we're going to build other music games, that's the first half of the year. In the second half of the year, we want to be able to think and say, how do we now move forward as a company? Do we look uh, beyond music games and expand more broadly on the iPhone platform? Or do we now take this over to other platforms, other devices, other carriers? That's the second half of the year. Uh, and then thirdly, as we are continuing to invest in our apps, um, we're also, and we see real value there that we're building, um, we're also going to increasingly focus on the social component and the network underneath it as a way of making the apps better and richer and more fun for the user, but also as where a lot of the value of the company is created uh, will be in the community and the network and the distribution and the information analytics that we have about the users that we reach, which is on the order of 15% or so of all iPod and iPhone users. Uh, and I think after Facebook, we probably have the, 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 the second largest network on the, on the iPhone, but it's somewhat latent. We don't, we're not collecting enough information and we're not enriching we're not engaging in rich enough of a fashion just yet with, with those six or seven million users actually as of today. Um, I guess this is the part where I think we should probably get much more interactive. 
I put up a whole bunch of lessons, and I didn't take quite the time to organize them in a, you know, into just perfect little buckets, so there's some overlap and some gaps there. Um, um, but and So why don't you sort of interject when we get to this point? I did sort of, there's a little bit of a flow to the list, um, and I don't know which, which, which of these lessons, whether you're more interested in sort of these startup lessons, uh, or the iPhone lessons, or the product lessons, uh, but there's a little bit of all, of all of it in there. The first one is um, angel, angels versus VCs. Grass is always greener on the other side. Uh, so when I was with VCs, uh, it was frustrating because of the control and the pressures that you get to grow fast and to go to shoot for the big exits, even if that's maybe not what your company wants to be uh, and, and the pace at which it wants to evolve organically. Um, now I have 40 investors. And that means that if anything goes right or anything goes wrong, you get 40 phone calls. And, um, and, and for a lot of our investors, it's a hobby. And, and that most of the time means that they love it and you get sort of cheerleader kind of feedback f- from your investors. But it also means that they're sort of not very disciplined and not very focused. Uh, and that can be distracting. And every now and then you wish for uh, the focused and disciplined attention that you get from a professional investor. I mean, I've got, one of my guys said, look, you should take our VC money because I wake up in the morning, it is my job to help you. The, f- the folks that you have now, it is not their job. You're their hobby, their pet project. And, and you might benefit from, 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 from professional, from people that... How do you actually unfilter that stuff? Are you just letting that all come through you? Or, I mean, that's Largely. Some, some of it sort of ripples out. Yeah. Um, but, 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 but I've sort of resigning myself to the fact that one way or another, dealing with investors as an entrepreneur is going to be about half of what you do. And, and either it's because you're looking to raise money uh, or because you have a VC investor that will fire you if you don't do a good job, or because you've got 40 angels that just need to, need to be nurtured and maintained and you need to stay in contact with. And when I spent not enough time with those people, then they got cranky. And they came back to my board and to myself and said, you're not doing a good job communicating with us. And so now every week, you know, I'm meeting with at least one of these folks and I'm reaching out to these folks very aggressively. And it, again, realistically, it's about half of my time, to be honest. Between current investors and future fundraising, 50% of my time. It always has been that case in every startup that I've been part of. Um, <clears throat> number two, um, as I said earlier, laying foundations for long-term success versus executing quickly. And it's another one of those things where you can get it wrong both ways. If, you, if we had spent the whole time building a great team, uh, then we would have lost out on the, on the first mover advantage and we wouldn't have been there on day one and I'm not sure that I would be here today. On the other hand, because we executed so fast, we didn't properly screen recruits. We didn't properly build a, a, a team culture. And that blew up in my face pretty loudly. Um, and what, what happened is I, I hired the wrong uh, en- lead engineer and had to fire him because he was uh, not the right guy. And, uh, and then ended up all over the Twitter sphere and on TechCrunch. And even to date, uh, when, as we're recruiting, people always ask about that. Is there something wrong with your company? Why did you lose all these people? Well, because they weren't on board. It, I've actually never changed what I was saying about the company. They were just saying different things behind our back. They, they, they sort of weren't listening when I was telling them what, and I didn't take the time to get to know them. And so that's, that's about executing and taking the time to build a team in an environment where you have to execute very, very quickly. So how do you actually then recover? Uh, too? I mean, like, moving on with the team gap. What did you have to do to actually kind of you know, deal with that? Deal with the investors and then also the team gap? I think it's, um, I've, you know, in general, I try to be sort of a straight shooter. So I try to be pretty open with it and deal with it in a fairly transparent manner. But it's hard because it's, it's it, the whole thing, and I have, I have a, a thing up there, Twitter, right? And what my Twitter lesson learned is that it is, um, it's a very asymmetrical world that we live in. And I don't think we lived in that world even two years ago. 
where um, you can bring an intern in for a month. And if that, and you might think, who cares? If he doesn't work out, he'll be out of here and it's not a, no, 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 no harm done to us or that person. Well, if that's a guy with a Twitter account and he puts up a Twitter post and he hangs out with three other buddies, all of a sudden there's like some meme out there about you not being a great workplace. Watch right? out, Alvin. <laughs> yeah, Brad, you're feed me. So, so it's very, it's very new. It's very asymmetrical, and it's a little, and it's, and, and from, 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 from where, where I'm sitting, yeah. it feels unfair because I can't really go, I can't really fully respond to that. You can't really engage on some of these things because you have legal obligations, you have a number of fiduciary obligations and leadership obligations that you just can't really fully engage. So the whole thing is asymmetrical, and this whole, the whole Twitter thing, um, it imposes a new threshold of sort of diligence uh, and sort of looking over your shoulder and thinking about sort of worst-case scenarios. I'll tell you, um, I'm very reluctant now. I've been having this discussion with Jessica. I'm very reluctant to hire uh, anybody that hasn't had three or four years of work experience that hasn't worked in a normal workplace. Somebody comes around and is 18 years old and loves hacking on the iPhone, I don't want to hear about it because, you know what, this guy is not professional, hasn't had professional grooming, and if I bring this person to my company and they blow up and they go to a party or they go on Twitter, that can be very costly to my company. So that is the bad part about it, that it makes, me, it makes me much more cautious and less willing to bring on raw talent because I've seen firsthand how expensive it can be and that the odds are quite great that raw talent might not work out. And a couple of years ago, that would just be the end of an employment relationship, but now that becomes a PR issue. And in our case, we are a TechCrunch story. Everything we do ends up on TechCrunch. And so, you know, it doesn't matter whether it's a big deal in, for the company in reality. Perception is everything. Uh, so you're transparent about it, but, I'm, but, I'm, but we're trying to be much more disciplined and more conservative in the kinds of people that we're bringing into the company, and that's not necessarily always a good thing. Number three, uh, the App Store is all about games. As I mentioned earlier, um, we thought that this was going to be about location-based services and the iPhone. Instead, it's about games and the iPod Touch. And, and I blogged about this on TechCrunch, actually, uh, a month ago. Um, more than half of our users are on the iPod Touch. Uh, more than half of our users are under 18. And most of those users are not always connected. So, so much for the idea of being a networked world where you always have location data about your users. Uh, they're not under contract with AT&T because they got a touch. That's the whole point of, not, uh, you know, of, of, of having a device. Uh, and, and so along with that comes that bullet number I don't know, 10 or something down there, the YouTube model. There's a, really, there's, a, there's a blog post that came out a couple of weeks ago that was, uh, the, the title was Why the App Store uh, Rewards Crappy Apps was the title of the blog post. There's a guy that worked for a company where they spent six months building a great app. And, uh, and the app store didn't really move the needle, didn't really rise very high on the app store, the charts. And then he decided to sort of on the side see what he can do in 24 hours and how high it could rise. And the thing went to number five. And it was one of the farting apps. And when I say farting app, I just mean it's like it's an app that goes, you know, and, and, and that's all it does. And uh, he put that out and didn't promote it, and lo, lo and behold, it became number five. And so his blog post is that the App Store, think about it this way. You're Steven Spielberg, and you're building this great movie, and the only distribution channel that exists for you is YouTube. And now you're competing with some dude taking a picture of his, a video clip of his hamster or like a 15-second <laughs> step from, from Saturday Night Live. That's the world that we're in on the App Store. It is a, it is a monopoly distribution channel, and the reason it works so well is that the reason that the App Store is on fire is that you've got a bunch of 12-year-olds that um, buy an iPod Touch 
And before they might have bought a Nintendo DS and you have to spend 20 bucks on a cartridge and there's a selection of 200 cartridges to pick from and maybe you can buy two of those things a month and you can carry one in your pocket. Well, now you can get this device for $199. That's almost as good as a Nintendo DS and you go on Wi-Fi once every couple of days and you get a farting app and the next day you get something else, a wallpaper app and every now and then you buy a game for $299 and you put some music on there and some videos. That's the app store, right? And so... As we're sitting there trying to build a business, you have to be cognizant of the fact that a lot of the value is derived from the fact that you've got this YouTube sort of bizarre approach to the world where you've got a lot of indie developers that are having fun cranking out an app a day or whatever it is, uh, and, 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 and then you have to figure out how you're going to be successful in that world. So that, that goes back to it's all about games, it's all about the iPod Touch. Um, and I believe that Apple did not know that, that this was going to be a gaming platform. In fact, it's like way down there, see where it says Jailbreak? One of, the, one of the most interesting pieces that I think, if you sort of, sort of are a historian, is that, again, I've never worked at Apple, and Apple's a bit, a bit of a black box, but, 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 but what I assume is that they put out this device and they thought it was going to be a nice, controlled, beautiful, perfect thing that you don't let people really touch and mess with, right? And what happened is, underneath it, it had FreeBSD, right, or BSD, and a whole bunch of developer tools that, we all, that, all, that the open source community and the new generation of hackers is very familiar with, and so they decided to break open the box. And they jailbroke the thing, they started playing with it. And, and, and I think Apple sort of did, did the smart thing by saying, we, we might as well sort of get in front of this thing and open it up. But a bunch of 12-year-olds jailbroke this thing a year and a half ago, and as a result of that, now, the, now Apple is sitting on not one winning platform uh, with a next-generation mobile phone, but on two winning platforms where they have now a gaming platform that is going to move more volume uh, than the Nintendo DS this year. And, and so that's a very, it's, it's, if you sort of, so if you look at sort of um, crowdsourcing and the power of community and this hacker movement, <clears throat> uh, I think that's, that's, a very, that's a very interesting uh, takeaway here um, for those of us that are more historically inclined. Um, the apps have a very short half-life. There was a story on, uh, that got picked up in a lot of places last week by a company called Pinch Media, where the guy, it was one of these advertising networks, analytics tools for the iPhone, and he published a whole bunch of data. And the point of it is what we, what we also see, which is that engagement is measured in... The half-life of an app is usually measured in, in weeks, uh, more than months. And uh, users lose interest very, very quickly. And so you, it's a very short half-life. And what we decided to do as a company is we said, well, there's two ways to make this work. You can either sort of optimize yourself for that world and crank out an app a day, the original model. I actually think our original model of sort of RockU-style apps... I think it was still a good idea, and you might still want to go do that one, but, but I think we overthought it. If you're going to do those, then really they should be farting apps, and you should crank out one a day. <laughs> but if you got, anyway, I want to do one of those, I'll probably write you a little check, you know, for 200 bucks, um, because I think you can do that. <laughs> we overthought it. Our apps take like a month to build. Yeah. It's too much. Yeah. If you're going to go to them, you should spend like no more than two days on them. Um, that is one way to deal with it, and, and, and focus on... Um, just selling them for 99 cents or, or having some good advertising relationships and building a network underneath it, which yeah, would be the interesting like, bit. Like Twinkle, right? Twitter, some of them, they're not all, they don't all have the same sort of right? Yeah. We can talk about Twinkle. It has 300,000 users now. It's one of the more successful apps. We have a, we're going to invest more in it because I think it's an interesting app. I'd, I'd prefer to sort of take the TapTap Revenge example because that is a counterexample, um, which is that with TapTap Revenge... We believe that there are a small number of apps that become staples and must-have apps and that are able to maintain users and keep users involved and, and, and never sort of drop out of the top 50. 
And with tap tap Revenge, we have one of those. Uh, the other ones that are out in that category, there's very few. There's Facebook, there's Pandora, there's Shazam. Uh, maybe I'm forgetting one, but but sort of that's those are the peers that I think of for our little company. And um, and 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 Shazam, arguably, and us are sort of the iPhone original brands, right? Shazam was around, but I think they really have sort of you know greatly benefited from the iPhone and. Pandora and Facebook, of course, are pre-existing brands that have the bulk of their users outside of the iPhone. So there's a couple of new brands here that have been able to establish themselves, and we're one of those, and perhaps arguably the biggest one. Um, and so what we're doing is we're investing in it, and we're really you know, bringing up the production values, as you've seen from the demo, hopefully, and from the device that's been floating around. Um, and what we do is you keep it fresh, new music every week, uh, live features, contests, tur- a tournament every week. So we give people lots and lots of reasons to come back, lots and lots of ways to connect with their friends, lots of new content, keep investing in it. Uh, and so by doing that, we believe that we have a winner and it reaches a critical mass where it's sort of a must-have. And we can keep the users interested because music and gaming is a pretty lethal combination in terms of something that users really want. And if you can be the leader, uh, there's, there's real value there. And that, that's how we've dealt with this short half-life. So we've taken the opposite approach. Licensing music is very, very important to us. And, and having branded music as opposed to catchy tunes from bands you've never heard of uh, is very important to us. So what we have been doing is we actually have a full-time person. I spend probably myself a good 20% of my time uh, doing music deals. And um, in this year we're trying to do more than a dozen of these custom branded apps. Uh, the first one that we've, I think we've mentioned it publicly, is Coldplay. And we have... Um, where it's going to be like around Viva La Vida. It's coming out in, in about a month. And so for us, what that is, is, is it is there's a land grab factor to it where we want to do like 20 of these deals so that we've sort of, you know, captured the biggest brands in music and that's going to make them less likely to want to work with other people uh, is one part of it. So it's a defensive maneuver to keep competitors from coming into our space. In terms of user engagement and sort of building, you know, a powerful platform, uh, that is the other half, is that users want music that they love uh, and the third part of it is that we sell those as premium games. And our model is that we say, look, we're going to do a Coldplay game, and that's going to be $4.99 for 10, for, for 10 songs, and that is sort of the magic price. Um, and what we then do is we say, by the way, can we have one promotional track that we can feature in the free game? So what we're doing as a strategy is we're saying we have a free game that our goal is to get maximum penetration and really make it... <laughs> Right, so like if tomorrow Rock Band launches, which you know, it's like I always assume that tomorrow we wake up and Rock Band launches on the iPhone, right? And that's going to be a fantastic product, and I assume that it's going to be four ninety nine. But you know what? It's not the end of the world because they're going to have two hundred thousand users, but I have seven million or ten million by the time that they launch. And so a lot of the power of what we're doing is that I'm building a community with a lot of numbers underneath it, reaching a ton of people, which allows me to get hundreds of thousands of users on paid games. And even if I need to stop doing music games because somebody comes around and kills us in, the, in, the, in that category, I still have that community of users that I can go back to. And so the strategy is to say, let's keep investing and building that free community up because it is the most powerful thing we have going for ourselves is that we have the biggest brand on the iPhone that's, that's an iPhone pure brand. Um, and let's do that in part by bringing in branded music. We bring a little bit of it into the free game and we make it available through essentially content packs. We've thought a lot about, you know, do you let anybody upload music? Any indie artist upload their own music? Um, and we sort of haven't finally resolved that, but we have a bias towards thinking that it is very important to make the game more social and to listen to the community and to have online play, etc. 
but that at the end of the day, users want music that they know and like. And so at some point we may do uh, indie music, upload your favorite song, but at the end of the day, if you look at, I mean, even Hulu YouTube, right? Hulu's doing very, very well and very, very quickly come out of nowhere uh, to catch up in terms of as a business, it's arguably bigger than YouTube today. Uh, people like branded content. Uh, so for us, our first priority is on the branded content side, getting Coldplay tracks in there, getting great music. Um, but what we have done is we've had to walk away from a lot of deals uh, because our approach has been there's any one deal we can walk away from. If an artist if the, or a label, the deal terms are too onerous on us, we just walk away and we probably have to walk away from the majority of all the deals that we, that we negotiate. At the end, we have to walk away from because if we don't do that, then as a business, uh, we're not going to be able to have a sustainable business model. So the advantage that we have over some of these other music companies is that we don't need to have every song in the catalog. We need to have a critical mass of catchy tunes that keep our users engaged. Within each of the labels, for example, there's three labels and I don't know, five big publishers, and then there's like five big management companies. So there's these fiefdoms. There's like the guy that represents the band, and he has his interests as a band manager, and there's some big companies there. Then there's the label, and they're in the business of selling music. And then there's the publisher, and they own the underlying content. Right? And these have distinctly different interests, these three parties. But if you go within a label, for example, you will find that there is a marketing guy. And he loves it when he gets his song featured for free in our game because he's all about getting buzz around an act or a song. And if we go to a marketing guy, we can get Katy Perry in the game for free. Then there's a licensing dude, and he's on the directions to never get to make sure that there's no more gratis licenses, what they call them. And the guy, at this point, that dude will veto all gratis licenses like there's no tomorrow in any of these labels because they are under strict instructions to stop giving away music for free. Then there's the mobile guy, and then there's the gaming guy, and then there's the iPhone guy, and it goes on forever. And then there's the band guy, because every band has sort of their own representative in, in, these, in these labels. So there's different stakeholders, that if, and if you sort of go through the right person, then your odds of sort of getting some good music in the game without, without having to pay for it or without having to pay a lot for it get a lot better. But structurally what's going on is that um, the, the argument of I have 10 million users and this is a great new way for people to discover music uh, does not fly at all with the big labels or the big publishers. They will say no thank you to that argument all day long. The artists and the indie labels love that argument because they understand that they're going to make money on concerts and that they're trying to build audiences and fan bases. Uh, but, the, but the labels and the publishers, they've got this intellectual property and they make money by selling it and by licensing it. And, and, and so they look at us and they go, like, you got 10 million users, I don't care. I can get a million plays or a million downloads on I like or on any number of places all day long how am I going to make money? And, and, and so what we say to them is, well, here are three things we can do for you today, and we can do a premium game, and we can do ref splits off of that, and that's the conversation that we're engaged in. And yeah, it, it okay. takes time and, and energy. We spent a fair amount of time sort of thinking about whether it was going to be ad-supported or, or app sales that was going to be the main driver of the business. Today, for us, it's both. Um, we are able to have a footprint and a user base thanks to the free app and we monetize that through advertising and then we use that as a promotional vehicle for premium apps. Uh, at this particular point in time we make more money through the premium apps than through advertising and we think it's going to get more so uh, because the CPM rates uh, and the advertising market in general is pretty, getting hit pretty, pretty bad by the economy. Um, long term, um, I'm not sure uh, which is going to be uh, the more powerful model, the media model or the premium app model. Um, I'm quite happy to be living, to be sort of on both sides of the fence. I would say if we were solely reliant 
on ads and on free apps today, uh, we would not be where we are today. We were able to break even a couple of months now. Um, and if we only had paid apps, we would not have a footprint. Like if all I had done was, people sometimes say to me, wow, you got 5 million users on TapTap Tap Revenge. Imagine if you'd charge 99 cents for that, you'd have made $5 million. And I was like, no, you're crazy. Because I would have sold 100,000. So I would have made $100,000 and nobody would know that I exist. And we would be fucked as a company. So, 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 so you have to think it through. Um, we got, so if you sort of like finish up the thing here, there's piracy on this platform and sometimes it's 50, 60, 70%. So you got to keep an eye out on that. Uh, this stuff is very sensitive to pricing. You have to keep changing your, your prices. It's very hard to hire because everybody thinks they're going to make a million dollars here. And why, did, why should I get a job with you? This is the new Nirvana where everybody can sort of work from their garage without having to talk to people and make a bunch of money overnight. So that makes for a tough... That makes, that makes for an ecosystem with thousands of apps that are competing with you, and it makes it hard to hire talented people that aren't, that aren't going to sort of walk the first time they have a cranky day. Um, Apple is a black box that is really hard to sort of have visibility into what's going to happen next. Um, and, but at the end of the day, I would say, you know, it's all about having a great product in a good category, and you've got to get lucky as well. In our case, the getting lucky part was the first mover piece. And so to come back to your, to, to your question is you have to have some sort of a way of rising above the noise and if you can rise above the noise and reach customers with a paid app, uh, more power to you. But in our case, we rose above the noise by being in a killer category, being there first, and getting to 6 million users, and then being able to monetize those users. So, because if you're looking at a 2% upsell rate in a freemium model, which is the typical rate, well, for most people, that's not so great. If you have a, you know, 100,000 people and you upsell 2,000 of those and you make a 2 bucks off of them, that doesn't do much. But if the number gets big enough, then it works, right? And our number is big enough right now. The, the reason that I was, to me as an entrepreneur, is sort of like you sit there and you think about what you ought to be. I remember sitting at a venture capital firm, thinking about what I wanted to do next with my life. And it was like, that's a great business idea. And you sort of like weigh the pros and cons, and maybe you're going to do it. And I sort of almost did one or two things. And then something comes along that you have to do, because it's just a thing you must do. And there's sort of, you're sort of beyond sort of reason. That's, and that's sort of every time I've done something, it's that feeling. And so for me, the way it worked for the iPhone was like, I know this thing is going to be big. I have to be there. I'm going to be the first one there. And when I look at Android and when I look at, um, at, 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 at Microsoft, their new thing, and at Palm, I'm like, you know what? I know there's going to be more than one big player here, but none of these, none of these feel like they have killed, and I don't get that feeling, that sort of imperative of action. And because of that, um, I am more, more conservative. And my, my general attitude has been, well, I've got two engineers. Let's say I've got two engineers or three engineers I can deploy to a new product. Would I rather have them work on Android or would I rather have them build another phone, another, another app for the App Store? I know that if I put them on the App Store, I'm going to get a couple million users out of that within like three months. If we had put those people in, in the fall and we last sort of asked ourselves the question, if I put them on Android, maybe we'd have 10,000 users on some Android app today just doesn't move the needle. So, so to me, it's like I follow my gut on those things. And while I believe that there will come a time when you have to be there, there is no obvious winner. And, it's just, and, and, and it's, that's how it's proven out. The the is not out yet. Uh, Windows announced their thing. It's, it's not obvious to me who of these people are actually going to nail it. And in fact, to me, the, the thing that's somewhat shocking is that if you'd asked me in June of 2007 when the, when the, the iPhone launched... How long is it going to take for Nokia to get their act together or for, for Android to launch and have a competitive product? I would have said, give them a year. But it's been like two years now, and it's like, what the hell? It seems, it seems really hard for people. 
people don't get product. But it was like, why the fuck is this? Because you play with the like, Jesus Christ, this thing is not... I love these guys, right? And I hope that... Because I want them to succeed. We want there to be more than one winning platform, right? And what, what I'm realizing is that there is a... It is hard to deliver quality product because there are so many pressures to make deals, to um, uh, uh, balance out various considerations. And, and I think Apple is somewhat unique in just sort of being ruthless about the user experience. And it's very hard if you're Nokia. You could be, because you'd be like, well, why don't they just freaking copy the thing, right? And just sort of like put a Nokia brand on it and do their industrial design. It's really hard to have that commitment as a big company to go do that. And that has been one of the bigger surprises to me, actually. I had no idea it was going to take that long to get uh, a really compelling alternative to the iPhone to market. So it might never happen. So that's the good news for us now, right? Is that um, if I build a, if, my, if we build a, a, a solid new app, then, first of all, people pay attention to us, so we will get a certain amount of press coverage and curiosity, um, where even if we didn't have the other app to directly promote it, we would have that going for us. But the numbers are big enough that I can use my user base, I can channel traffic to that app, and even if we never get featured... In fact, one of the things that's interesting is that if you look at the App Store, one of the, one of the more interesting things in the Pinch Media report that came out last week was that if you're in the top 100... There's a, there's a 2.25x multiple on the number of downloads that comes from being in the top one, in any, in, in any top 100. In other words, users can't find you if you're not in one of the leaderboards, right? Of course. So what happens is if you look at your, at, at your, and you get like a 2x for being in the top 25 or something, right? So you're sitting there and you've got a winner app and it's got 200,000 users. And then it drops to number 10 and you're at like 100,000 users. And then you're at number 40 and you've got like 20,000 new installs a day, right? What happens is when you drop to number 101, all of a sudden you'll drop to 1,000 users a day or something. I don't know, but a lot. There's like this big old drop-off. We are now at the point where we, that law no longer holds for us. We have apps out there, and with TapTap Revenge 2, we have a Nine Inch Nails version of the game. And we can keep selling three, 400 copies of that game every day till the end of time. Because people will keep discovering it by playing TapTap Revenge. So we have an additional way for people to discover our, our other apps uh, and we're going to hopefully get better at, at sort of doing that in, a, in an organic and natural way that doesn't feel like it's um, overly spammy or whatever to our users. Right. Sure. Any questions? Come up. Thank you.